Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. Today, we're welcoming back Professor Greg Downs from the University of California, Davis. He's a professor of history. He recently published, late last year, The Second American Revolution, The Civil War Era Struggle Over Cuba and the Rebirth of the American Republic, again published late last year by UNC Press. Welcome back to the show, Professor Downs. Thanks so much for having me. So, by way of introduction, why was the quote-unquote greater civil war referred to as a second American revolution, and what prompted you to study it? That's a good question, because most of the time Americans today, and really for the last hundred years, have taken for granted the name of the nation's most significant conflict. Um, that They take for granted that it is called the Civil War and has always been called the Civil War. And as I lay out in both the introduction and conclusion, there are consequences to those names. And one of the consequences of the Civil War is that, as a name, is that it confuses us about the ways that people understood it at the time. During the war itself, the Civil War was by far not the most commonly invoked name. For the South, in the Confederacy, it was often the War of Southern Independence. In the North, the most common name, uh, there were many names that were utilized, but the most common was the War of the Rebellion. And that endured as the most common Northern usage uh, for decades after. A number of scholars have, have done work on, the, on, this, uh, on these kinds of usage. And the Civil War emerged uh, as the dominant usage in the very closing years of the 19th century and the early 20th century. And it's not a coincidence that that is exactly as disfranchisement purged uh, African-American voters from the South and Southern states embarked upon a course of legal segregation and disfranchisement and the creation of a Jim Crow state in the South. That in the absence of black political power, the pressure for white northerners and white southerners to reconcile was immense, and the linguistic aspects of those compromises was that the Confederates gave up the name the War of Southern Independence, and loyal northerners gave up the name the War of the Rebellion, which was seen as uh, disrespectful by many ex-Confederates. And the Civil War then emerged always was a political term used for political purposes. We've lost that sense. In recovering, as Gaines Foster and other fine historians have done, that linguistic interplay, though, it opens up a bunch of other questions. What else did people call it? And I'm interested here in following the implications of one of the other usages that were relatively common during the war and the immediate aftermath, but now seem strange to us. And that's the usage of the Second American Revolution. As the book begins, 
It begins with a quote from the New York Herald on inauguration day in March of 1869, as Ulysses S. Grant is inaugurated. And the Herald calls the inauguration the culmination of the Second American Revolution. A term that had been used throughout the war would be utilized for a while after and fall into eclipse. Now, if it was just a matter of the fact that some people use some different names, it's interesting to know, but it's not that important. But there is, I think, a sense, a series of meanings embedded in the ways that they used revolution that are actually helpful for us today in trying to pry open and to rethink what the Civil War was and to try and look at it without the confidence that we already know what it was, to see it anew as stranger and more meaningful than we might immediately first subscribe. If the Civil War puts the conflict into a domestic and a domesticated conflict, an internal fight, and a fight that's almost literally a family feud, most notably in the metaphoric references to a brother's war. This diminishes some of the ideological stakes. It takes it out of a world history. And it also, I think, obscures the ways that the war was fought, which were, of course, in many respects, not civil at all. But Americans have trouble, and I believe that the terminology of revolution helps us to pry open those meanings that were apparent at the time to some contemporaries and are apparent on analysis. But it's hard for Americans to talk and think about a second revolution uh, for a number of reasons. Many countries, you know, uh, have a popular culture where they have one revolution and others have to be named in other uh, in other ways. You could easily argue that Mexico has had a number of important revolutions, but the Mexican revolution refers to one particular early 20th century moment. And so the 1850s and 60s wars of Juarez, which were considered revolutions at the time, get renamed La Reforma. Similarly, there's an enormous pressure in English history about what to name a revolution and what kind of revolution, so that the English Civil War, which in obvious respects is revolution, doesn't get called a revolution because that title is saved for a domesticated, glorious revolution uh, toward the end of, the cent- of that century. So, too, it's difficult for Americans to talk about two revolutions. If, if, if we have two, it means the first one didn't work. Uh, And that's part of what the Second American Revolution framework let in for the Herald as well as for other observers, which is that they argued that the Constitution by 1869, the Herald, which had been relatively conservative before and even during the war, argued that the war had exposed that the Constitution founded by the first uh, revolution had in many respects failed. It needed to be purified, expurgated, number of different words you see using to consider how to think about the remaking of the Constitution. And that in this respect, it was not a fulfillment, a resolution of contradictions, but a remaking of something, but a making of something that in certain respects was new and in certain respects replacing something old. And that reckoning with the idea that the Constitution might well have been A failure is something very difficult for Americans to reconcile until up to this day. 
Second, it pointed to the methods. That is, Grant was looking to add one more amendment to the Constitution and a 15th Amendment. He was going to rely, as the previous ones had, upon martial law, which I wrote about and we talked about in our previous podcast, upon directives from military commanders to states, upon states that had been formed by very peculiar processes and very peculiarly constituted congresses. In other words, not through the normal modes of politics something that instead relied upon going beyond the boundaries. Another classic sign of what makes a revolution, a movement, a reliance on forcible means to create permanent change. And then the third way that they considered it to be a revolutionary moment was that it was intended to transform an international uh, framework. We might even fall into saying transform the world, though I think it would be overly um, optimistic about American power to imagine that it would have that big an impact on places like Asia or East Africa, but certainly to transform the Atlantic. And they expected that the Grant administration would complete the transformation from of the United States from the single most important global defender of slavery to the single most aggressive attacker of slavery. And in this respect, they expected, though as we'll get into in our other questions, they were disappointed, they expected that Grant would call for direct U.S. intervention in Cuba to end slavery there immediately. And these pieces bring together, uh, in interesting ways, anticipate the ways that scholars today, social scientists and others, uh, have talked about what it means to uh, think of a revolution and to, once we step beyond the idea that there's only been, say, five great revolutions and we think about what a revolution is, um, that these um, that these give us some windows into into what a revolution is. That a revolution is a forcible tra- effort to trans- permanently transform the political arrangements. It draws from international conditions and is meant to remake at least that part of the world that the nation impacts. So they're drawn from international circumstances. They rely upon highly unusual methods, and they aim to create permanent and fundamental change in the political and economic order. We lose that dramatic and radical sense of the U.S. Civil War if we talk about it as a brother's war, a battle between sides, if we depoliticize it and turn it into something that should be understood solely as the efforts of men in uniform on fields instead of centering the ideological stakes for the people who ordered those men out and in turn used those ideologies to convince men that what they were fighting for was worth dying for. So on the eve of the Civil War and during the Civil War, and on that note, how and why did Republicans and Democrat secessionists accuse each other of quote-unquote revolution amidst these crises in sovereignty? There's a great irony that your question points to, which is that For something that I call a revolution, many of the people, especially at the beginning, denied fervently that they were revolutionaries. And this also rubs against our sense of what a revolution is, Um, that many people heavily influenced by older sociological theories of great revolutions imagine revolutions as led by a very self-conscious revolutionary avant-garde 
Certainly that's an important part of what makes a revolution. But in fact, as scholars, especially in light of the last 30 years of the revolutions that spread through the former Soviet bloc at the end of the Cold War, of the Arab Spring, and a series of other revolutionary movements across the world uh, over the last couple of decades, that scholars have come to become much more interested in the idea that many revolutions emerge without very clear revolutionaries. And of course, it's obviously true that many self-conscious avant-garde revolutionaries never come close to starting a revolution. So how do we make sense of this? What's it mean if we think of a revolution without focusing primarily upon revolutionaries? Uh, as the leader. What it means is that what revolutions emerge from is what scholars call a revolutionary situation, which is a moment when crisis creates multiple sources of sovereignty that each claim authority and a right to rule in ways that can't be reconciled. And in that moment, when you look at other revolutionary uh, moments, the color revolutions, the Arab Spring, you see people move in to take revolutionary actions who previously had always thought of themselves as moderates, even institutionalists. And thus you can have a revolution without revolutionaries, just as obviously you can have revolutionaries and no revolution. In many respects, that's a partial explanation of how we should understand the very beginning of the Civil War. There were people in the U.S. North who thought of themselves as revolutionaries. Of course, John Brown would be the most obvious uh, person to, to come to mind. But even among many radical abolitionists, many were weary of revolutionary methods of force and bloodshed, as they understood revolution to depend upon, um, as the way of affecting change, in part because they were skeptical of its success. And of course, the Republican Party, aiming to gain a majority of uh, Northern votes, did not run as a revolutionary party. They ran as the party that said they were fulfilling the goals of the founders. They called the Democrats, Stephen Douglas, the revolutionaries for trying to remake the Constitution into a pro-slavery document. And of course, Douglas spent and most of the Democrats spent most of the 1850s calling the Republicans revolutionaries. It was one of the things that unified Northern and Southern Democrats. And so we get this oddity that both parties in the U.S. North call the other side revolutionaries and deny that they are. Meanwhile, most of the Confederates themselves are locked into a set of arguments in which they cannot say they're revolutionaries. That in seeking to call themselves secessionists, what they're aiming to do is to say that the Confederacy has a right to exist from the moment of its foundation. That's very different than a revolution. Lincoln and others call the Confederacy a revolution in part to assert its standing in the world. That in a revolution, Lincoln and others argue, other nations should sit back and watch to see if the revolution succeeds. If it doesn't, then it has never been a country, a, a respectable country could do business with or have dealings with. And thus, the success of a revolution determines whether the world should recognize 
the revolutionaries is an independent country. The problem for the Confederates is that's, that's a high bar, and they want the help from the Europeans immediately. And secession is in part aimed at this international audience to say we're a legitimate nation from day one. So there's an immense pressure upon Confederate leaders to deny that they're revolutionaries, even as, of course, as both Northern Republicans and Northern Democrats will call secessionists revolutionaries. There are some exceptions. The most famous would be Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. Um, there were some Southerners, in, in, in uh, many of whom had been Whigs, who had den- denied that the right of secession existed, but agreed that Southern states had a right to launch a revolution. In North Carolina, they try and replace an ordinance of secession with an ordinance of revolution. They don't believe that there's a right to secession, but they do believe, as virtually all Americans believe, that aggrieved people had a right to try a revolution. They better win, and they should have good reasons. In his famous cornerstone speech, um, at where Alexander Stevens calls slavery the cornerstone of the Confederacy, uh, near the moment of its founding, he also says that what makes the Confederacy a revolution is how it is able to discard the false doctrines of the Declaration of Independence, to discard ideas about the equality of human beings, which had created a poor foundation for government, and instead, to dis- in discarding it, to start anew a revolutionary break with a government that would be self-consciously built upon racial inequality, rather than just being built on racial inequality while upholding other values. So we've got, but Stevens and some others aside, we have a conundrum. By the middle of 1861, everybody agrees that they're in what's potentially a revolutionary situation, and everyone says they didn't do it. And I argue that there's a couple pieces of this, one of which is the importance of the of people of the of an American politics in which the, sometimes the most radical people learn to clothe what they're doing in moderation which is something Lincoln often did and that has confused Lincoln scholars ever since. That in taking radical acts to present them as the most moderate way possible as a way of sustaining political support. Also that they're drawing upon a language they literally inherited from England in which the glorious revolution, itself a violent overthrow of not only the monarchy, but a attempt to restore a monarchical near absolutism, in the late 17th century, that it got retold in histories and Whiggish histories as a mild and moderate revolution. And in many ways, the ways that people talk about the Civil War parallels that work on the Glorious Revolution, most notably by Steve Pincus, of trying to cover up and moderate it. And so what we get is a scenario in which I argue that Confederates, fearing that they've lost power, not just in the U.S., but in the world, fearing uh, what is ahead of them, launch a revolution, not from a position of strength, but of weakness and desperation, a defensive uh, revolution in order to try and salvage the slavery they see on the ropes, and in which Lincoln and Northern Republicans cannily, but confusingly, wait to try and force the Confederates to leap first in order to swing public opinion in the North on their side. So we get this oddity of a revolution that seems not to have 
clear, self-conscious revolutionaries, but where each breakdown of sovereignty leads the other side to act in ways that they previously would not have imagined. And that's another way of defining a revolutionary moment, a revolutionary time. Not when people fulfill things they've always dreamed of, but when they get the ch- when they suddenly begin acting in ways they could not have imagined. And you see that overtaking Lincoln and even moderate Republicans over 1861, and you also clearly see it overtaking Confederates over the same time period. So spinning out of that question, how and why did Lincoln and the Republicans, quote unquote, straddle conflicting temporalities in revolutionizing the federal constitution, especially with the 13th Amendment? (laughs) So as Republicans faced what to do as they move through the war, um, begin to prevail against the Confederacy, see the breakdown of slavery, great deal by the tens of thousands of formerly enslaved people who run to U.S. lines and break down and attack slavery from within. As they see this and look toward the future, they face a dilemma. And the dilemma is this. They have run on the platform that they are the true defenders of the Constitution, the Constitution as it was intended to be, which they believed, or at least argued, was intended to be an inherently anti-slavery Constitution that had been perverted by a slave power. But they accepted that as part of the compromises of the Constitution, that anti-slavery default ended at state lines, that states had power over slavery. Thus, they could very quickly, you know, or quite quickly within the war, start to attack slavery in the territories, on the high seas, um, you know, in transit, in Washington, D.C., even in occupied areas. But how could they stay within the Constitution and also attack slavery in the states? The only, even they had to admit that the only way to successfully do this And legally to do this was to change the Constitution. Thus, the fight over whether the Civil War was a war to save or preserve the Constitution or to change the Constitution. You see elements of both. In the course of that, Republicans come by 1864 to the sense that slavery won't die naturally during the war, that states won't end it quickly enough, even under pressure. They won't be able to make enough new states in the South after their disappointments in trying to construct unionist governments in Louisiana and in eastern North Carolina and Arkansas. And they'll not be able to end slavery that way. And so the only way is a constitutional amendment. But how do you pass a constitutional amendment in wartime? Well, there's a couple of questions. Constitutional amendments need two supermajorities, one in the Congress and one in the states. Well, what counts as a supermajority in Congress? Here, Republicans have an opportunity that I think they find irresistible, though at times it makes some of them nervous too, which is with the Confederate states having left and after Republicans have expelled numerous other members uh, for disloyalty, some of whom were from loyal states, they then face a a question. Is the Congress that remains enough? By the rules of Congress, they're able to have a quorum. 
But a number of Democrats and even some Republicans say, look, this is not a real Congress. We don't have representation from everyone. We need to use this Congress to govern the war and win the war. But is this a Congress we can use in order to make permanent change? And Republicans really wrestle with that question, and essentially they come to the resolution that they don't have a choice. They won't be able to end the war without making permanent change. They have to rely on this Congress, so they do. Because that Congress continued to meet in Washington, because it called its numbers the same, we treat it as if it's the same as the Congresses that came before. But I think in other countries, we'd be much more quickly to come up with to at least ascribe some legitimacy to the names of its critics as a kind of rump parliament or a directory or a group that has appointed itself a set of powers that probably go beyond that go beyond normal time. So one question is, can the constitutional amendment pass a Congress just with the supermajority of those who are there? On the one hand, the rules suggest yes. On the other hand, it's highly peculiar and nothing else has happened like it. And they do it anyway. Then the question of, and, and the Congress that passes not only uh, doesn't have the Confederacy, but they've used this reduced Congress to make new states, particularly the peculiarly constituted state of West Virginia. Um, and they count toward the supermajority. Then it goes to the states. Well, what states count? Can you pass with the supermajority just of the loyal states and tell the disloyal states they don't count the numerator or the denominator? They consider that. Eventually, the decision is made by the Secretary of State, William Seward, that the constitutional amendment clears when it passes a supermajority of all the states. So to get that, they're going to need to be able in each of these amendments to get approval from ex-Confederate states. And to get that, they rely on martial law. Over the course of 1865, they get the approval of these newly constituted states out in the West, They get the, and in West Virginia, they get the approval of states that they have occupied in the South and ordered under martial law to ratify the 13th Amendment. Now here I think that if we look at this in any other country, and we said the army went in and ordered a section of the country to pass a permanent constitutional change, we would say that this was not a normally constituted constitutional time, that it was something like a revolution. In the U.S., we worry about that because, we, of course, we face the certainty that we all, I hope, are glad slavery was killed and wish it dead. And in order to reconcile that hope with an enduring American faith in the Constitution, we assume that the processes that end slavery in the 13th Amendment or establish citizenship due process equal protection in the 14th or that put some barriers around voter disfranchisement in the 15th, that those could be passed by legitimate constitutional means. But I think that inverts the logic. And if we face the means that they use to remake the Constitution, oddly constituted Congresses filled with all kinds of what we would call chicanery at certain points and keeping people out or tossing people out to make sure the 14th Amendment gets through, passed through states that have been oddly created and states under martial law, that we face a more daunting recognition that in fact, 
the way to resolve the tension between the necessity of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and our sense of the Constitution is to recognize that the Constitution could not meet the moment and had to be superseded by irregularity and force. So you mentioned the 14th and 15th Amendments. Did anyone acknowledge the Republican politician and voters who continued to revolutionize the Constitution also during uh, occupation? And were there any uh, limitations to this uh, revolutionary effort? So yes, as a matter of fact, you do see um, certainly Democrats run throughout the war on the idea, loyal Northern Democrats run on a platform of the Union as it is, the Constitution as it was. But they're fighting only to save the Union, not to change it. What's very strange about Civil War historiography is that you find many people uh, articulating this as the position of the Republicans, when it's exactly the position of their political opponents. Voters who wanted that had a political party that was premised on the idea of only a war for union. And then they had the alternative of a Republican party that's, of course, the party that eventually won, which articulated a different position, though not always a self-consciously revolutionary position. So Democrats spend the whole war saying the Republicans are being revolutionaries. At first, most Republicans deny it. It's necessity. It's a problem, uh, you know, that they that they don't have an easy solution to. Uh, they they're, they're just trying to, you know, yoke these changes to the necessity of winning the war. But once the Confederates surrender, that argument about necessity um, becomes a little bit more confused. If the Confederates have already surrendered, by definition, the things that the U.S. does after their surrender aren't necessary to win the war if the war is solely a fight on the battlefield. But what if it isn't? That's the question that the Republicans have to face. Can they acknowledge that the war was about something more than just bringing the South back in under any terms? And in the period after, you do see a number of Republicans after surrender, a number of Republicans acknowledging that it is a revolution sometimes celebrating it as the greatest revolution in world history, greater than the French because it succeeded, sometimes saying that they hadn't intended a revolution, but the South had forced a revolution on them, sometimes pointing to the simple impossibility of reconciling themselves with any options other than revolution in the face of what they defined as an ongoing revolutionary resistance to U.S. power in the Confederacy, even after surrender. Other Republicans are highly wary and fearful either of the idea or of its political consequences, and so resist that language. And you do see fights within the Republican Party. And then quite quickly after Reconstruction comes to its end, you do see Republicans starting to paper over some of the revolutionary breaks they made to try and make it seem as if the amendments passed easily as ways of naturalizing them and making them part of an American fabric, not a temporary revolutionary disjuncture. So these are highly contested debates during the time period um, and things that it's often hard to trace anyone being quite um, clear or coherent or consistent as they go through the war. 
So what? Let's move to the uh, to the uh, greater civil, so-called greater civil war. What was and what sparked the 1843 La Escalera, and who advanced the subsequent Cuban annexationist movement in the U.S.? That's a good question. So when I call it a greater civil war, what I'm calling it, what I'm suggesting is not just that it was a civil war that had greater implications, but all inside the U.S., but that like other revolutionary moments, it was drawn from ways of reading the world situation and in turn trying to gain control over the U.S. government in order to impact that world situation. So that revolutions have consequences for the war world, but they also have global causes. And this, I think, is true of the Civil War also, that we need to be cautious of telling a tale that stays so closely inside the U.S. that we get a familiar litany that goes from the Hill House Amendment, the Louisiana Purchase, the Missouri Compromise, the gag rule. Uh, the Battle of Texas, the U.S.-Mexico War, the Wilmot Proviso, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, um, Dred Scott, John Brown, Secession. Those are all important and crucial events we should understand. But in fact, there are other causes that will that we can let the air in and see as well. And the most important of those, I argue, is the situation in Cuba. A number of U.S. historians have written about U.S. desire to annex Cuba, um, which we'll get to in some of the other questions. What I try and invert here is to build on an incredible slew of work by Cuban and Spanish historians, uh, historians of Cuba and the Spanish Empire, some in the U.S., some in Cuba, some in Spain, that have really tried to excavate not what did the U.S. fantasize about Cuba, but what's going on in Cuba. And there's been an enormous amount of work to suggest that the reason that Cuba itself is in a period of crisis and ongoing rebellion through the 1840s and 1850s, and that when U.S. politicians and editors start to respond to that over the 40s and 50s, they're responding to something specific happening in Cuba, not just to an abstract American manifest destiny type desire. One of those crucial moments is La Escalera, which remains the source of uh, scholarly controversy um, and investigation, including a recent and excellent book, prize-winning book by Aisha Finch. Um, La Escalera um, is a Cuban um, investigation, Cuban uh, rulers of the Cuba at the time, still a colony of Spain, Spain's rulers on the island and local planters um, become uh, concerned that outbreaks of rebelliousness among slaves are interconnected, um, launch a serious uh, wave of uh, investigations dependent upon torture um, that produce claims of a broad-based slave conspiracy um, that aim to launch a rebellion on the island that point to a free man of color, a poet uh, named Placido, um, and to numbers of other people involved in um, these uprisings or potential uprisings, including, as Finch argues, a number of enslaved women who seem to play key roles in these information networks. The exact contours of, of what was happening and would have happened are hard to separate from the fact that the Spaniards, um, Spanish colonial officials relied upon torture. So we're, we're stuck with 
um, being fascinated by these transcripts and also concerned about how to read them. The scholars have done enormous work in, in, uh, in trying to, to, to work through these. But while Spain tries to keep it quiet, this rebellion, it creates waves across the Atlantic, including among both U.S. and English abolitionists. They are eager to grasp the idea of a Cuban slave revolt and a Placido as a erudite, literally a poet, um, figure who can be held up as a martyr of the battle against slavery. And he's celebrated in both U.S. and English newspapers and in ways that help to capture anti-slavery newspapers, not in pro-slavery newspapers, and in ways that help to capture some things that have been changing in Cuba which is that Cuba had arisen as a central source of sugar slavery and sugar production after the Haitian Revolution, as some planters fled Haiti directly with slaves for Cuba and moved technologies, and as Haiti is excluded from world markets for sugar, Cuba planters turn massively toward um, toward expanding slavery to expand their sugar production. And this builds a complex between Havana Matanzas. Um, slavery had long existed on the island, but in much lower levels. And the island itself had been of great strategic importance, but of uncertain economic importance. Sugar makes uh, changes that dramatically. And it's this influx of uh, a large-scale influx of new slaves from directly from Africa, often in violation of treaties with the British um, to promise to curtail the slave trade, um, that, the, that La Escalera helps to point attention to. The U.S. itself supports the Spanish government in squashing uh, brutally through execution, torture, and exile um, the leaders of, the, of La Escalera and supports it. But it raises questions in the U.S., which had, since the annexation of Florida looked to Cuba as a potential site of a next step. It raises questions about what kind of opportunities might lie ahead. One is fears, which have grounding, that Great Britain is, anchor, is angling to utilize a crisis in slavery to try to strike against slavery in Cuba and in Texas in order to isolate the United States and to center the Great Britain as a protectorate of anti-slavery countries that will be brought under British trading control. Um, and there are, in fact, evidence of both English engagement with Texas and with Spanish officials. And this helps prompt the panic in the U.S. that leads to the, to me, clearly extra-constitutional efforts to annex Texas without approving a treaty. That they have to before the crisis strikes. The war with the U.S. and Mexico then will bring the U.S. deeper into the Gulf as it, as it annexes Texas and invades Mexico and center for the next 10 years the desire to invade Cuba in order to save slavery perversely inside the United States. And it'll center a set of figures who I think you're about to ask me about in Cuba, um, who for different reasons will try and use the crises in the Gulf to see if they can manipulate either the U.S. or Mexico to intervening on their behalf.
During the 1850s, on the on the eve of the Civil War, how did "quote unquote" white Cuban Creole exiles become part of the Young America movement, which was both pro and and, and anti-slavery movement? So, in the aftermath of the U.S.-Mexico War, we get the Spanish recognition of a number of potentially or already rebellious elements on the island. And they're all, you know, um, worried about, you know, or looking to resist Spanish imperial power for different reasons. Of course, the slaves and the free people of color, who also constitute a, a large group on the island, as well as a group on the eastern part of the island who will be particularly important in the 1850s, were people who exist, who live in an area that have been marginalized by the growth of Havana Matanzas, so are people around Puerto Principe, Santiago de Cuba, other places in that area, um, where slavery had existed, but in relatively smaller form and largely in things like ranching uh, and, and other smaller forms of agriculture, not sugar. In that area, many um, white Cuban, uh, white Cuban-born Spanish-identifying people, who we can refer to as white Creoles, though there's there's you know controversy around around naming, uh, you know, as as there should be, um, become dissatisfied with the Spanish Empire precisely because of the slave trade. Not that they're anti-slavery, but that they fear that Spain's response to crisis will be to flood the island with slaves and to make the island essentially a repeat of of, of Saint-Domingue or of Haiti. Um, in essence, to make it an island in which uh, white Creoles are pushed out and a small number of planters hold control over a vast number of slaves and everyone else is essentially pushed out. Many of these people um, are actively plotting rebellions by the end of the U.S.-Mexico War. They will, um, and their rebellions will be tied to another group that in many ways has contradictory visions. These are some of the large scale planters in the Havana Matanzas area. Some of them are also Cuban born, and so they're excluded from high office by Spanish imperial policy that favors peninsulares, people born in Spain, over even white Spaniards born in Cuba. Um, and some of them fear that the British pressure on Spain will cause Spain to end slavery. And they see the U.S. as a way to save their large-scale plantations. This is what a revolutionary situation does. It produces strange alignments in which, for a time, the people fighting most desperately to protect slavery end up aligned with white Cuban Creoles who are not trying to overthrow slavery but to put a break on it. Uh, and to make sure that Cuba remains a white-dominated island, the pet project of one of their leaders, Domingo de Guacaria. Then in, in, 18, in the years right after the U.S.-Mexico War, a couple of things happened. A key U.S. editors um, arrived from Mexico City from covering the war, uh, one named Cora Montgomery, or that's her pen name, uh, and another, her editor, Moses Beach. There they, as well as John O'Sullivan, the coiner of the term Manifest Destiny, all in Havana meet and engage with high-level um, elite uh, planters who convince them the island is able is ready to rise up. 
um, and that they all they need to do is convince the U.S. Of, to, to show some sign and they'll rise up if they can be sure they'll win. The leading figure in the Cuban side of this becomes a Spanish imperial military man named Narciso Lopez. Uh, Venezuelan-born, but had served in office in Cuba. And he'll organize efforts to invade Cuba um, through, uh, several times over the late 1840s and early 1850s until he's captured and executed. And these invasions themselves are filibustering invasions, are often hard to pin down in U.S. history. On the one hand, when he leaves uh, his invasions from the South tend to include almost exclusively U.S. people and European immigrants, very few other Cubans. For this reason, they often get written into history as a kind of comical, ridiculous effort uh, in which uh, Lopez is either a fool or a scoundrel, and the U.S. is looking to use these as kind of invasions on the cheap. But what's actually clear, and that's what you might see if you only looked at the U.S. records, what's actually clear if you inverted and looked at the Cuban records and the Spanish imperial records, is Spain doesn't see Lopez like that at all. In fact, they argue that he has deep roots of support in Cuba and that deep roots and support in the hundreds and hundreds of people that Spain is exiling for the, from the island for supporting him. And that instead what happens is not the U.S. overreaching, but the U.S. in fact restraining. That on the U.S., the Cuban exiles ready to fight with Lopez are keeping a close eye on the federal government. And when the federal government says we don't approve of this, almost all the Cubans back away. And the people who have the confidence they can act without the federal government support are the Americans. So that you see these invasions entirely differently if you look at them from U.S. sources as if you look at them from Spanish sources. Then we look at the question of what about these Cuban rebel, rebels in the U.S.? What are they doing? How are they? What happens if we don't make them passive recipients of U.S. fantasy? And that's where we get the importance of the connection you asked about with Young America, an expansionist movement of uh, Democrats who see the way out of the slavery um, quagmire is uh, or conflict inside U.S. politics after the U.S.-Mexico War is expansion everywhere. Canada, Mexico, keep adding territory, a kind of national greatness platform. Cubans very quickly put themselves into Young American networks in New York City and around New Orleans and start to look to see if they can manipulate U.S. politicians to trying to back an invasion of Cuba in order to get what they want, which is Cuba out of Spain's hands. And these Cuban exiles often change their position or hold contradictory positions for independence, for independence under a U.S. kind of protectorate as a state of the U.S., anything except Spain. And it's in this way of seeing the tensions over the expansion of slavery that I think we can start to internationalize the causes of the Civil War. But if we think not of the fantasy of some fools who go on to their death in the U.S., but instead the plotting and planning of groups of Cuban exiles who aim to force into U.S. politics the question of international slavery and slavery in Cuba. And they do. 
The Democrats eventually moved toward, though not fully, a young America position toward the expansion of slavery and an, and an embrace of the idea, though never actually official support for it, but an embrace of the idea of Cuba coming under U.S. Uh, protectorate or entering as a state. And that, I argue, is one of the things that creates a broader international vision of the Republican Party to move from here's the domestic compromises we can make or have to make in a constitutional system to here's what we can do internationally. And internationally, we can act to end slavery everywhere. So let's uh, focus on what stymied the so-called revolutionary efforts of Cuban Creole exiles and young America politicians. Um, so how did Spanish endorsement of free black labor, a coup in Spain and bleeding Kansas all stymie these efforts, yet they also ushered in anti-slavery expansionism and Cuban Creole anti-slavery activism? Right. So Spain responding to these crises experiments with a number of solutions, one of which is the appointment of a highly uh, interesting figure uh, as captain general, essentially the the martial governor of the island, uh, who begins to explore both arming free black men and also explore shifting Cuba from a system of slavery to some kind of system of something closer toward indenture or bonded labor and to explore the replacement of new slaves with with the so-called coolie trade from China. This creates a couple of panics, panics in the U.S. um, that Cuba will, uh, you know, experience that emancipation that will threaten U.S. slavery, that that will lead to a revolution by the slaves, um, which will lead to a revolution inside the United States. Uh, And it's hard to tell from afar uh, exactly how much support this has in Spain. It's certainly a way of appeasing Britain and easing tensions with Britain, which is, uh, and of keeping Britain as potentially its partner if the U.S. were to act and invade, of isolating the U.S., and, and it succeeds in that. At the same time, however, the Slave lobby around Havana, Matanzas, especially those with deep connections back to, you know, with close connections back to Spain and former captains general uh, who had served there, made tons of money, uh, and then gone back to Spain. The slave lobby lobbies intensely in Madrid to support and defend slavery. Um, and in a, a coup that knocks out um, a more progressive government in Madrid, uh, leads to the recall of the government governor uh, and an effort in by Spain to reassert the power of slavery on the island, something that'll come up again. In the U.S., meanwhile, the expansive, the efforts at expansion in domestic politics uh, that have been taking hold in the Democratic Party run up against the conflict over the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which is written, uh, future Republicans argue, explicitly to make it easy to absorb Cuba with slaves into the republic. That, in other words, they don't believe slavery will end up in Kansas. They do believe the Kansas-Nebraska Act is a font in order to add Cuba as a way of making up for the free state of California at in the 1850 compromise. Um, so it does get stymied. So these hopes move deeply into politics. Republicans argue Kansas, Nebraska is just a front for Cuba. And as they move into 1856 or more directly centering Cuba in, uh, in their rhetoric. 
How did uh, U.S. filibuster liberal imperialism in the Americas, James Buchanan's lackluster <laughs> bombast, um, Republican anti-slavery act of, uh, expansionism and anti-slavery challenges all help per- precipitate what you describe as the second American revolution? So in the there's groups, if we think of the U.S. as itself uh, a center of conflict of U.S. politics, different groups are trying to use each of these crises in the same way. So what might look in the retrospect as the moment when the hopes for adding Cuba should have died or, or other people moments when the crisis can be turned. Um, but what we see is that as Democrats start to look toward um, the growth of a northern opposition vote um, in the 1856 election, and then even more so in the 1858 midterms, um, Democrats become fearful um, that Cuba uh, is a, uh, adding Cuba as a slave state is an unpopular position in the North, uh, and fearful that they'll be pressed to it by Southern expansionists and pressed in a way that'll force them to defeat. Um, that there are, it's easier to tell a northern public that slavery is something they're stuck with inside the states as part of the compromise than to acknowledge the U.S. as the global defender of slavery. And it's for this reason that we get something that is a, a bit of a paradox. From the U.S. side, we see lots of complaints by anti-slavery that the U.S. is backing the filibusters. But oddly, from the Spanish documents, the Spanish ministers and diplomats argue that the U.S., even Buchanan, does whatever they ask. Um, that in the end, the U.S. is not willing to risk a war with Spain and especially with Spain and Britain uh, in order to support the filibusters. They might like, the Buchanan administration might like the idea of Cuba having a revolution and joining the U.S., but they're not actually willing to take the risk. During and after uh, the Civil War, how did the politics of U.S. anti-slavery expansionist internationalism, liberty power, and Mexican liberalism exacerbate debates over support for the quote-unquote Cuban Revolution of 1868, as well as that uh, simultaneous coup in Spain? So there's some interesting, there's a lot that happens during the war itself, perhaps one of the most key um, impacts uh, during the Civil War is the concomitant battles in Mexico, um, in which the Mexican liberal government under Benito Juarez uh, is attacked first in Veracruz um, by a coalition of European forces, then by France uh, and its armies driven from Mexico City and an emperor is installed. A number of People close to Juarez, including his son-in-law, are themselves Cuban rebels. And there's a number of Cuban exiles who have settled in, in among, uh, among the liberal hierarchy, in part because of connections they made in a time in New Orleans. As the U.S. Uh, concludes, it's as, this, as the Confederacy surrenders, the U.S. warns France that it needs to withdraw from Mexico or risk war when France does withdraw. Juarez, drawing upon other sources of support and his own victories, is able to drive out the emperor, execute him, establish power. So now, all of a sudden, by 1867, you've got new governments in the U.S. and in in Mexico. You've got Cuban exiles with access to both of them. And they're looking to utilize these new governments, transform governments, to remake Cuba. A number of these people start revolts even uh, 
Earlier in 1866, uh, there are slave revolts uh, that are uh, rumored about during the war itself. By 1868, a number of very well-connected uh, Cubans with, uh, you know, in the eastern part of the island that have been a basis of earlier uprisings and with connections both to important Cuban exiles in the U.S. and Mexico, launched the revolution. And this time they believe they have what Lopez never had. They believe they have two governments, the U.S. and Mexico, ready to support them. So it's this change of the world that they're looking for as part of their revolutionary hopes. What were the surprising roles, I guess, surprising to me, of former Doface uh, Daniel Sickles and Spanish historian Emilio Castellar in the 1873 uh, Puerto Rican abolitionist movement, as well as that, quote unquote, Spanish Republican revolution? So from the U.S. at first, things looked relatively simple by 1868. A revolution in Cuba led by people with close connections to the U.S. They make important points of having um, the people, uh, you know, of claiming to be at least mildly anti-slavery, though they're not um, coherently anti-slavery until former slaves run to join them and force them toward broader abolitionist positions. But they think if they can look anti-slavery enough, the U.S. will come in and support them. And in fact, things seem to be moving in that direction, though there's also fear of debt and of a war with Spain. But then, but there's enormous uh, impetus uh, inside anti-slavery movements among uh, black soldiers in the U.S. Army and others to, uh, to directly intervene. And then there's a coup in Spain. And at that point, they depose the monarch. And the general who leads it, Juan Prem, is an extremely adept operator. And he, while looking to put in a monarch, uh, a new constitutional monarch, both negotiates deals with Mexico about Mexican debt and also keeps suggesting to the U.S. that he's on the verge of some kind of emancipation, at least in Puerto Rico. Give him a little time. But if the U.S. comes in on the side of Cuba, then, of course, he'll have to lead a brutal war that the U.S. will suffer for and they'll have to defend slavery. The person he's talking to is a guy named Daniel Sickles. Sickles had been a leader of uh, the Young America movement, had helped to uh, you know, aid Buchanan and others in pressing for Cuba to save, to get Cuba to save slavery in the 1850s. Uh, but he had, during the Civil War, um, become a supporter of, infran- of emancipation. And even after a trip down to South America, come back, and then quite a radical uh, military general of the Carolinas, where he had been uh, replaced by Johnson for being too radical. Um, by the time of the of Spain, he believes that his historic mission is to add Cuba to the U.S. probably, but certainly to end slavery in Cuba. So an exact um, definition of somebody changing their views in a revolutionary situation. So that's what uh, Sickles uh, aims to do. And he gets convinced by Prem that Spain is always on the verge of acting, and also that if they wait for Spain to act, Spain will ask uh, for a payment from the U.S. 
uh, of a hundred million or some amount of money in order either to give Cuba independence or to make it uh, a uh, you know a part of a Spanish Commonwealth or to pay for the emancipation of slaves. Um, after if if Cuba became independent, who knows? Maybe it could enter the United States. But always that hundred million dollars. And Sickles, who's a uh, person who's always looking out for himself, believes that he can control those bonds and make tons of money off of selling them in order to pay the Spanish for independence. So he starts to argue, don't intervene in Cuba, work with Spain. Over the next few years, Prem struggles to find a monarch who can replace him, who can come in and take over the government. And Spanish Republicans work directly with Sickles to press for abolition in both Puerto Rico and Cuba, sometimes meeting in his house, sometimes Sickles speaking to them, sometimes uh, Sickles giving them information about emancipation in South Carolina and so on. In uh, Prem finally gets a new monarch. He himself is assassinated mysteriously. The new monarch also keeps trying to play Sickles for time. Sickles gives up on it and leaves in a huff. As the Grand Administration pressures this new government in Spain, Sickles returns, pressures uh, the monarch to act, torn between these two pressures, the U.S. saying you have to end slavery, Spanish Republicans and abolitionists pressuring them, but Cuban planters and other money from the islands pressuring to save it, the monarch capitulates and leaves and the Republicans uh, claim the government in a short-lived Spanish Republic that Spanish conservatives see as a product of Sickles' manipulation and of his effort to turn an earlier gradual and almost impossible to enforce Emancipation Act passed as a sop by uh, the liberal monarch, Amadeo, to turn toward a direct emancipation. And in fact, they move toward that. Um, the pressure that he places is to move toward that in Puerto Rico in order to try and put pressure on Cuba. And that's what forces the crisis over 1873, in which Sickles is pressuring the Spanish Republican government to act on their beliefs, but in a moment of great crisis as they're facing rebellions within Spain and a rebellion in Cuba. How did Cuban planters in turn and volunteer executions drive a wedge between the Reconstruction era U.S. and the, not to be too teleological, doomed Castellarian Spanish Republic? So the planters in the Havana Matanzas area have strong resistance to the idea of Republican government, of emancipation or abolition. And they are funding a volunteer force, the Voluntarios, who are fighting a brutal war at times of extermination against the rebels. When the Spanish Republican government sends its new captain general, they simply don't listen to him. Uh, they ignore him, force him to flee, and they assert their own control over the island. A number of observers say there are two rebellions in Cuba at the time. There's a rebellion of from the eastern shore that includes both these old exiles and enormous numbers of, of slaves who've arrived to radicalize and empower it. And then in the Havana Matanzas region, there's a rebellion by planters against the Castellar government. Castellar is relatively helpless in the face of this, of, uh, of not being able to enforce his will over Cuba. Cuban planters, when the Cuban government captures a ship full of international, including U.S. 
um, forces coming in to aid the rebels. The planters move to quickly start executing in order to force a crisis. Castellar, Sickles presses Castellar to block it. Castellar is not able to block these executions immediately. And in the process, the Cuban uh, planters are able to use it to turn the U.S. government and popular opinion against Castellar in Spain and to create a series of uproars and confusions that dissipates that sense that the U.S. is always about to but never quite entering the war to uh, support some form of Cuban independence or separation. So moving to your uh, conclusion, what do you mean by the third American Republic and third founders? And why do you argue that scholars should set aside the idea that Reconstruction was a quote, was a quote unquote, unfinished revolution? So um, in the aftermath of what I talked about, we get a, in the last question, a series of reactionary returns in the U.S., in Mexico, in Spain, and Cuba, the overthrow of the Republican government, the reestablishment of a monarchy, the endurance, though not forever, of, a, of a Spanish imperial slavery in Cuba. In Mexico, after Juarez is passing the creation of a one-party state with a virtual dictator in Porfirio Diaz. In the U.S., the overthrow of democracy and the retreat into a Jim Crow segregation. And I suggest that there's something about this interconnection that's meaningful um, to think about the ways that U.S. Reconstruction depended upon an international expansionism and died in the face of retreat around the world, that it drew its power um, and its sustenance both from a U.S. vision in the world and also from the idea of being on the cusp of a moment when the whole world would turn. Scholars have long acknowledged uh, this, this rollback, um, and the most dominant theory for how to understand it is called the Unfinished Revolution, and Eric Foner's masterwork on Reconstruction, clearly the greatest book ever written on Reconstruction, one of the greatest books of American history ever written. And while there's an enormous amount uh, to take from that book, I resist the idea of an unfinished revolution. Instead, I argue that, uh, that, at the, that if we think about a revolution as a movement toward forcible methods for permanent transformations, that all revolutions end as you make this effort to transition back to normal methods, however that is. That in essence, the aspirations of a revolution may not be complete. Of course, Reconstruction was unfinished in the sense that the goals weren't complete, but the revolutionary moment ended. And that if we call it an unfinished revolution, we miss, we risk confusing um, methods uh, with goals. Revolutionary goals continue, the methods end. Then what I argue is there's something really bleak and depressing about the idea that as John Fabian Witt, legal scholar and others are exploring, that legalism could not preserve reconstruction, that it depended upon a sense of wartime and a reliance on wartime, and that it raises questions about the adequacy of even the second constitution. Against this, a key question since the 1950s and the explosion of an ongoing civil rights movement and then the transformations of the 1960s has been whether the civil rights movement fulfilled Reconstruction. In this sense, if Reconstruction was unfinished, was it, if not finished, at least moved toward fulfillment by the civil rights movement? 
In other words, that the constitution that the Reconstruction made was sufficient, it just lacked political will. And that's an important point. But in the conclusion, I explore what I think is a bleaker alternative, which is that what had to happen, as uh, some legal scholars have suggested, in the period of between the Depression and the Second Civil War was for lawyers and especially Supreme Court justices to essentially remake the Constitution again, not this time through force. So I'm not certain about whether I would join some other scholars in calling it a third revolution, but in a way that itself was a break. They invented a new 14th Amendment to make up for the fact that the 14th Amendment that passed wasn't doing what they needed it to do. And this was an act of incredible rhetorical invention, but we don't have to follow them in saying that it's actually just a continuation. In other words, what if we dissever Reconstruction from the Civil Rights Movement and think of the Civil Rights Movement as itself really proceeding upon different lines for different purposes? Uh, And that's what I, and, and relying on different methods. And that's what I want to use the conclusion to reflect on that how does fundamental change happen in the United States? And there's risks of us using reconstruction of the Civil War effort to suggest that it happens through normal processes, because I don't see much evidence uh, that that's in fact the case. That instead, when we focus on processes, that we'll see in fact that often it depends upon irregular and sometimes directly violent and forceful processes. So on that note, I have uh, one final question. Uh, What's going on with you next? Are there any uh, additional projects that you're working on? So I do have a couple of things. There's a few small things that I'm working on, and I'm also uh, focusing on two big things, one of which is that with Northwestern's Kate Mazur, I'll be one of the two editors of the Journal of the Civil War Era, um, which is an important uh, uh, academic journal. Uh, And I'll also be finishing uh, a book on Nat Turner and prophecy uh, by my friend Tony Kay, a longtime professor at Penn State who died tragically young and who asked me to uh, complete his manuscript. So those are the two two most direct things. After that, I've got a lot of big ideas, but as yet unformed, about how to move backward in time and to really reflect upon the transformation of the United States and especially the United States North over the first half of the 19th century. Congratulations on your new position. And we hope uh, uh, you'll remember the uh, New Books Network for uh, your friend's book. Thank you so much. I'd be delighted to. So this has been a uh, production of the New Books Network. The book is The Second American Revolution, The Civil War Era Struggle Over Cuba and the Rebirth of the American Republic, published late last year by UNC Press. On behalf of Professor Downs, this is Ryan Tripp for New Books in History, signing off. <laughs>